Amen, amen. Good morning. Open with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 12. These are the first words of Jesus' public ministry. And this account that we're about to read takes place immediately after Jesus' baptism and his temptation in the wilderness. Think about that for a second and notice what Jesus is doing. He is rewalking the footsteps of Israel, but taking no missteps. Israel passed through the Red Sea, they passed through the waters, and then they spent 40 years tempted in the wilderness. Jesus did the same. He passed through the waters of his own baptism, and then for 40 days, tempted in the wilderness, yet without sin, without grumbling, without failure. And so by moving into Gentile territory, as we'll see he's about to do, we'll see Jesus fulfill a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9. If John was like the voice of one preparing the way for the light of the world, Jesus is the light itself. The past few times I've opened God's Word with you guys, we studied Isaiah's servant songs. There we saw Jesus in the shadows, and I'm excited that today we get to see him in full color. We get to see him in bright light. So in the time that we have together this summer, while Albert is on sabbatical, over the course of three sermons, we're going to consider Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God. The teaching on the kingdom of God. Let's read, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive in. Matthew 4, starting in verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your name is holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your will be done in our hearts as your spirit speaks by your word today. May that change our lives, our relationships, our communities. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight and yours alone, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So boredom may be a bit of a lost art these days with devices, but I've mentioned to you a couple of times how many countless hours I spent deathly bored in my family's um, place of business. And one day I found up on a shelf a kaleidoscope. It was a stained glass kaleidoscope, and I'm amazed they even let me touch it or take it down. But it was a golden tube, and it had two layers of stained glass that you could spin. And when you looked into it, you could see the, it would reflect light into a million combinations. It was enchanting to me. It was mesmerizing. The name for the device itself, the kaleidoscope, comes from three Greek terms. Words meaning beauty, and then form or shape, and to look at or examine. So kaleidoscope means to examine, to appreciate, to look at beautiful shapes. Y'all, looking at the kingdom of God is like looking through a kaleidoscope. 
If we only view it from one angle, we cannot appreciate or even make sense of the light that we see. And so the big question we should be asking today in light of Jesus' message is this. What is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? This question is more difficult than you might imagine because each angle, each perspective from which you look at the kingdom will reveal more rich complexity. And while there may be countless layers and refractions, there is only one light. There is only one light. So today, my challenge for you is twofold. View the kingdom through a kaleidoscope, but view your king through a microscope. View the kingdom through a kaleidoscope, but view your king through a microscope. By the light of Jesus' message here, my dream is that you would be filled with hope as we answer Jesus' challenge to repent. Why? Because repentance is possible. It's possible because of the power and the nearness of God. And that power and nearness is spreading through our souls through our churches, through our communities, until one day it is consummated in glory. We can repent because of the power and nearness of God. That's what we're going to say today. So first, view the kingdom through a kaleidoscope. Now, what is the nature of the kingdom that Jesus mentions here? It seems from God's word that we have a few options. Is the kingdom of God a spiritual reality for the present? Is it something that's happening inside of you for right now? Jesus hints at this in John 18 when he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And then Paul in Romans 14 says so explicitly, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Y'all hear how that sounds very inward, very present, very now. Or maybe the kingdom isn't here in the present at all. It's in the future for believers to receive at death, Matthew 25. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Okay, so that makes it sound like the kingdom is something we inherit at death in the future. But do we live there now? Colossians 1 says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Or do we go there one day, as 2 Peter 1 says, for in this way we will be richly provided for you an entrance into the kingdom, eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But then Jesus tells the Pharisees, don't look for it in the future. It's already here. Luke 17, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So is the kingdom a situation? Is it a place? Is it a condition? Is it a people? Is scripture contradicting itself here? No, not in the slightest. There's one little shift in thinking that we have to make to take something complex like this and understand it simply. These days, when we think about a kingdom, we tend to think about the land that a king rules over, right? The place where he uh, has authority. I imagine Mufasa telling Simba, look, Simba, 
all that the light touches will be your kingdom, right? That's how we think of a kingdom. So it's either the place where the king rules or it's the people he rules over, everyone who lives in his empire, in his reign. But New Testament scholars George Ladd and R.T. France are very helpful here. The words that we translate as kingdom, both in the Old Testament and right here in this passage in the New Testament, refer to the reign, the power, the authority itself, the sovereignty of the king, not the place or the people or the situation or the condition. So rather than referring to a specific time, place, or situation called the kingdom, we have here a dynamic kaleidoscope concept of God ruling. God's rule. So when you see or hear kingdom, it may be helpful for you to add the idea in your brain of kingship, the kingship of God, or God's reign. It's been said that Matthew 4.17 might then be paraphrased as God's promised reign is beginning or God is now taking control. So when we view the kingdom through this kaleidoscope, all the seeming conflicting passages start to make sense. God is reigning in the past. He's reigning personally now. He's reigning in the future in glory. Do you see how it makes sense of this word as we read it as English speakers? It's very helpful. And it challenges our oversimplifications, the ways that we make and manufacture a kingdom in our image according to our own desires and our wishes for the world. And we tend to think of the kingdom in a handful of overly simplistic ways. What are are those ways? We can think of the kingdom as simply being heaven. One day, someday, that's the kingdom of God. Or maybe we think of the kingdom as the earth. What's happening right now, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and seeing God's principles lived out here. Maybe the kingdom is just our inner life like our soul and what's happening there. Maybe the kingdom is simply the church, right? As the church grows, then the kingdom grows. Or maybe the kingdom is simply living out godly principles for the highest good of society. But think about it. If the kingdom is simply heaven, does this world really matter? If we believe this, we can escape one day and we can watch the world burn. And that's not what we're taught. In the creation mandate, and being sent out into the world to love the world and to love the people of this world. But if the kingdom is simply earth, then we have a kingdom without a king. We can feed the poor, cure the sick, give voice to the voiceless, but avoid calling people to repentance and faith like Jesus does. Y'all, we can rule the land, bring good laws and culture, but it all stays here. It's not even a heavenly kingdom. If the kingdom is simply our own spiritual life, this was actually taught by Tolstoy. He had a book called The Kingdom is Within You. And even Nietzsche, a non-believer, explicitly said this, the kingdom of heaven is a condition of the heart, not something that comes on earth or after death. If, If the kingdom is simply our own inner life, our own soul, then we become kingdoms and kings to ourselves. And we need neither a kingdom nor a king outside of ourselves. What if, the, what if the kingdom is the church, right? And actually, St. Augustine taught this. What if the kingdom is the church? And that would make sense. But if that's the case, then we could just put our own house in order, 
detached from the world and live in a parallel society. At most, seeking the kingdom then would be doing evangelism to grow the church. What if the kingdom is simply living according to God's principles in public? Then we'll be tempted, and y'all hear me on this, If the kingdom is simply living and seeking the good of society, then we will be tempted to either baptize right-wing politics or left-wing politics as the way of achieving the kingdom on earth. And neither one of those is the way. Neither one of those is the way to the kingdom. When we do this, we will go so far as to question the salvation of those who disagree with us because we've conflated the kingdom of God with our own vision for living in a good society. Do you hear me, church? We cannot conflate those two things. But what if we believe that the kingdom is the reign of God, the power of God itself? According to one commentator, then we are free to live wisely within the world where we find ourselves. Because we believe that God reigns, we can account for the rise and fall of nations, We can live in a submersive way to critique culture and the kings around us. We can encourage the faithful. We can share the gospel of the kingdom and warn those who don't believe of the consequences of God's righteous justice when His kingdom is complete. So then, what is the kingdom? The answer is yes. It's not only inward, It's not only outward, it's not only present, it's not only future. It's not only spiritual, it's not only physical. It's not only the church, it's not only the world. It's not simply heaven, it's not simply earth. Pull out your number two pencil and fill out the last bubble on your standardized test. All of the above. All of the above. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus And the kingdom is the reign, the power of Jesus himself, which will then guide our longing for heaven, guide our care for people and the things of earth. It will guide our inner spiritual life. It will guide the church and in seeking a godly good society on earth. But it's his power. It's his power, not our hopes, not our dreams, not our wishes. This brings us to our next question. What does it mean that the kingdom is near? This is what Jesus says. From that time he began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Israel thought that the kingdom would end their seemingly endless exile, right? Babylon was in the rearview mirror for quite a ways, but Rome was still bearing down on them. The mystery of the kingdom was that that Jesus introduces is that it would come with blessing. The kingdom would come with blessing for the whole world, but without changing the world right away. It wasn't immediate. Without getting into the weeds too much here, the word that Jesus uses here that means at hand or near is in the perfect tense. If it were in the present tense, it would indicate that the drawing near is still happening. The kingdom is still on the way somehow. But what Jesus is saying is that this act carries with it a sense of completion. It's right here. It's in our midst. It's at hand. It's right in front of you. It's present and accounted for. Y'all, the kingdom was near because the king was standing right in front of them. The kingdom is near because Jesus is near. Do you see it? 
That's how the kingdom is coming. That's how the kingdom is near. And flip over, this will help us understand it. Flip over with me to Matthew 4, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those opposed, oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Y'all see Isaiah 9 creeping into the world there? Those who are dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. This is the gospel of the kingdom. This is the gospel of the kingdom and what Jesus came to do. What's happening here is that the kingdom of sin, death, and Satan is collapsing right in front of them. This is precisely why throughout Jesus' life and ministry, he does so much healing and casting out demons. Have you ever wondered why Jesus spends so much of his time doing that? Why do we have all these weird accounts of him casting out demons? It's because the evil one is falling like lightning from heaven. Satan is being defeated as Jesus begins his earthly ministry. The revolution has begun, and it's basically already over. Think about the story of Scripture as the constant clashings of rival kingdoms, okay? The seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. Cain and Abel. Pharaoh and the children of Israel. Israel and the Philistines. Israel and Babylon. Herod and the newborn king. This text is the final clash of Yahweh against sin, death, and Satan. Jesus' concern isn't Caesar. That's not how this kingdom advances. In 1985, um, Tears for Fears sang a haunting ballad called Everybody Wants to Rule the World. I hope it's in your head for the rest of the day. That's my goal. Everybody wants to rule the world, and it's true. But only a few have been so bold as to try, right? Alexander the Great may have come the closest, but we can think of Julius Caesar, Napoleon Bonaparte, and recent terrifying examples in Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin. They all tried to rule the world. The sad thing is when Christians take a posture of domination against one another and our world. Y'all, I hope you see that as problematic. This is not the way forward. But there are a few pitfalls here. There's not just one pitfall. There are two sides, two ditches. Some of us might be more tempted to be preoccupied in our role with the kingdom. The idea of patient faithfulness in exile sounds like weakness or concession to the evil in the world, right? That's one pitfall. Overly preoccupied with our role in the kingdom. But other of us might be tempted to avoid it entirely. Maybe talk of kingdom to you sounds triumphalistic. Maybe you prefer a heavenly kingdom to look forward to rather than an earthly kingdom to live in now. But both have to be true. Both have to be true. Because how did Jesus teach us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. It has to be both. Or else it's not the kingdom Friends, the new creation has begun. The ruler of this world has been overthrown. But something doesn't feel comforting about it. 
Something doesn't feel complete. If he's defeated, why does it still feel like the world is falling apart? One commentator explains it this way. When you read the Old Testament, you're left with a sense that the story is supposed to be going somewhere, but it hasn't gotten there yet. It's an unfinished narrative, right? The kingdom of Israel, the promised land, King David's reign. It all seems very unfinished. The earthly conquest did not satisfy, nor did it ultimately materialize. But y'all, the stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which we will consider all summer, finish that story. Isn't that amazing? They finish that story. If exile is the payment for sin, so forgiveness of sin is the means, means the end of exile. If forgiveness comes, then exile is over, and Jesus brings jubilee through forgiveness. The question for us is, how is that forgiveness, that kingdom transformation, achieved? How do we enter into this jubilee? How do we enter the kingdom? This brings us to our final point. View the king through a microscope. View the king through a microscope. I studied biology in undergrad, and part of our final research project, we studied a blood parasite. And so to collect the data, I spent hours and hours and hours with my face to a microscope, a backlight on these blood samples, and I had to count these blood parasites to see because we were looking for a cure, right? We were looking for a cure. There was a reality of which I would remain ignorant until I had the means to see. Until I was given the means to see. Friends, kaleidoscopes and microscopes are useless without light. They're useless. When we view Jesus up close by the light of his Holy Spirit, it changes us. The eyes of faith, which themselves are a gift of the king, helps us see the king for who he is. And when we see the kaleidoscope kingdom in its beautiful complexity and we hear that the king is near, there's only one response. And it's the first word out of Jesus' mouth in his public ministry. And it's a difficult one. Jesus says, repent. This word for you might bring up thoughts of behavior change. Maybe you think when you hear the word repent or repentance, stop doing what you were doing and do something different. But I want you, me, you to hear me say that this word repent, as Jesus uses it, means be converted. It speaks to a remorse, a remorse over the past that sparks radical change in mind and heart. What Jesus calls us here, calls us to here is complete change. A metamorphosis from one creature to another, and it cannot be accomplished by our own decision to change. Without the light of Christ, none of us would know that we needed to change at all. But now that the light has shined, now that the kingdom is here, now that the reign of Jesus is inaugurated, transformation happens, which means change is possible. As the light shines through us, we are renewed and enabled more and more to put sin to death and live in light of the kingdom. 
Friends, repentance is the only appropriate response to the reign of God in the world. This is the only response when we look with focus and attention through the microscope of faith at Jesus himself. And it is Jesus' grace to us to both require and give us the gift of repentance. We cannot expect entrance into his kingdom without it. We will not enter the kingdom of heaven without repenting. But as our confession proclaims, there is no sin so small that it doesn't deserve judgment, but there is no sin so great that it can bring judgment on someone who truly repents. Let me read that one more time. There is no sin so small that does not deserve eternal judgment, but there is no sin so great that it can bring judgment on someone who truly repents. Y'all, that's the good news. That's the good news of the kingdom. As he says, repent and believe, my kingdom is near. I was always really perplexed when I heard what Jesus says in Matthew 16. He says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I thought, surely none of the disciples would still be alive at the second coming of Jesus or at the end of the world. But it's not so mysterious anymore. What did the disciples see? They saw the cross. They saw the resurrection. They saw the ascension. And they saw the Holy Spirit poured out at Pentecost. Y'all, they saw the kingdom coming. They saw the Son of Man coming with power because they saw his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And their repentance is illustrated for us in the entire book of Acts. As their lives were transformed from tax collectors and fishermen huddled behind locked doors into witnesses of Jesus' good news to the whole world. Why? Because all authority was given to Jesus. To him is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And what we see, when we see the world through that scope, it changes us. We turn away from sin, but listen to this, guys. We do not turn away from the world. We turn away from sin, but we do not turn away from this world. The kingdom of heaven is for the world. We are not saved from the world. We're saved for the world. As Jesus prays for us in John 17, we're not of it. There's a part of us that doesn't belong here, but we are sent to it and left in it for a reason. So personal forgiveness and entrance into heaven, the beautiful gifts of repentance and faith, Those are just the beginning. It's just the beginning. But it is the nearness of God that makes me so urgent to tell you. Y'all, before I repented and believed, I was not simply a good person who is ignorant of God's love for me. I was under a curse. I was under judgment without hope in this world and on a trajectory towards death. But by extravagant grace, my heart was illuminated and changed. This is your story too. This is the hope that we bring to the world. This is the nature of the kingdom. It is near, it is at hand because Jesus is near. Maybe someone you love, or maybe you, have not repented and believed. The invitation is right here at the table 
of the Lord. Psalm 23 sings about our good shepherd and says, He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Even though you struggle with sin, even though you may have been sinned against, even though this world is not yet what it will be and should be, the king provides safety. Can you imagine eating a feast while the enemies are surrounding you? That takes a lot of confidence. It takes a lot of comfort. It takes a lot of safety. The kingdom is here despite any misleading evidence to the contrary. It's here, and though it's not complete, it is sure and certain enough for us to stop and feast in celebration. So let's pray and then commune with our king and with one another. It could be said that we're holding hands while the walls come tumbling down. After we pray and sing, we will eat as a statement of faith and confidence in our King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, turn our attention to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lead us in our lifetime, lead all of our days, lead our church, and come quickly to conclude the good work that you have begun. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.